mini-series, three-week series. Last week was life after death. This week, heaven. Next week, hell. Um, it may pan out that I have to do heaven over these two weeks, just because of the content, but we'll see. We'll see how we go. Um, but I think it's important that if you're going to preach, preach on heaven, you, you better preach on hell. Um, William Booth, who was the founder of the Salvation Army, he said about 150 years ago, he said, one of my fears about Christianity is that, and he mentioned a few things, and then he said, that, um, a heaven without a hell. And um, just the whole thing where you can just, just simply speak on the nice, positive bits and miss out the bits that sh- which are slightly more uncomfortable. And um, the Bible, and Jesus spoke on hell more than anyone else in the Bible. And he spoke on hell more than he spoke on heaven. And so to just ignore it and to just pretend, well, you know, it would probably be uh, cowardly and, um, and un- honouring to God and God's word. So we're going we're gonna to hit it um, head on, hopefully next week. Now, in the film Gladiator, the hero Maximus, just before he was about to take the cavalry into, a ba- into, into battle, he said to them, what we do in this life echoes throughout eternity. He was inspiring them. They're about to race into a battle where many of them potentially will lose their lives. And his inspiration for them was this. His, his motivation for sacrifice was this. What we do in this life will echo throughout eternity. Now, if Maximus was right, then we need to work out what happens in eternity so that we can work out what to do in this life. Human beings are wired to hope. What I mean by that is this, that it's instinctive in us to look ahead, look on the horizon for something positive, something exciting to get us through the mundane or to get us through the difficult. So you're having a bad day at work, you think about the weekend. Simple example of it. Or you're going through a tough time, and you think, man, alive. And then you remember, yeah, but in three weeks' time, I'm going on holiday. Yeah? Or you're fed up with the weather in December, and you think, but it's nearly Christmas. The way, the way that we are wired is that we instinctively look ahead and anticipate something good and it drives us forward. In fact, an observation was made of the, um, the, 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 the Jews who were in the concentration camps um, um, during the Nazi reign and it was, said, it was said this, an observation was those who maintained hope and dreams of what would be afterwards, of, of, of what would happen in their lives once they were released, they were the ones who tended to survive. Those who gave up on really any hope of getting out, any hope of release, they were the ones much more likely to die. What is that? Well, I believe that a lot of things that happen in the natural are a reflection of the spiritual. And the way that we are wired in terms of looking ahead and hoping and that driving and motivating us forward, I believe is a reflection of spiritual realities which is that we were actually made to spend forever with God in eternal bliss. That that is not fanciful, that is not um, fairy tale, that is not naive, that is actually fundamental to what we are as people. We were made for eternity. We were made for eternity with God. We were made for an eternity where there was no more sadness, no more death, no more weeping, no more mourning, as we'll look at later. That's what we are made for. And so what we do in the temporary is actually just an indicative. It just really speaks of what we were made for. Eternally, and I want us to look at this today. It's not supposed to be vague, 
this whole idea of heaven, it's not supposed to be some elusive thing that, kind of, well, it's, you know, maybe something nice will happen when I die, as you hear people say, or maybe I'll get in. It's not supposed to be like that. It's supposed to be firm in our hearts, something very clear. The Bible calls it our future hope. It, 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 for, for the Christian, it's supposed to do, I guess, three things. It's supposed to uh, motivate us to persevere. At times as a Christian, you're just very aware, man, I'm swimming against the tide here. I'm saying things, I'm getting shot down in flames. You know, I'm feeling the pinch of following Jesus. And actually, this, you know, there are those seasons, aren't there, where you feel it. You think, man, this is hard. And so it inspires us to persevere. It should motivate us for purity. When temptation comes in and you think, I know I shouldn't do that, but everything in me is crying out, do that. It's at that moment you need to think, no, because I'm going for something better and much more enjoyable beyond that that is lasting. So I'm going to say no to that because this thing... You see, if you've got a vague understanding of heaven, there's no way you can say no to temptation when it comes along. Because you just think, I'll blow it. Because you know, heaven might not even happen anyway. I might as well just enjoy this. In fact, the Bible says this. The logical way of living, if there's no heaven or hell, here's the logical way of living. Eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That is logic. So when you find people utterly consumed with... Food and drink, and that's their whole life, and just the here and now, that is the logical outworking of there being no grasp of eternal realities. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So perseverance, purity, and also purpose. Why am I here? Why am I here? I'm here for him, and ultimately I will be with him forever. But if you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not, you wouldn't describe, you're not sure how you would describe yourself, then this whole teaching has massive application for you as well, because it's supposed to provoke you to say, look, there's more to life than just the here and now. There's more to life than just what you can get out of it in the temporary. There's so much more. It's supposed to arrest you with an understanding that, oh my goodness, there's an eternity to consider. Eternal realities of heaven and hell and should draw you to a place where you actually have to make a call on this stuff. And so it's helpful for those of us that are Christians, that are born again, that know the Lord. It's helpful for those of us who are not sure quite where we're at. So we're going to look at some things today. The first thing we're going to look at is, what does heaven mean in the Bible? Can mean any Because if I say to you, what is heaven? I'm sure there'll be all kinds of ideas. We're sitting on clouds, playing harps. That's the typical thing, isn't it? Floating around. Now, I, you know, if your idea of heaven is floating around, and that would be fun for half an hour, but it goes on forever, right? So it better be better than that. I mean, floating's cool, yeah? But, you know, sometimes when you're on an aeroplane, looking at the cloud, you think that would be fun. But after a while, I'm sure you'd be thinking, okay, what's, the ne- what's next? Is there, what's the next level? You know, it's more than that. So what does the Bible mean? Well, let's look, at, let's look at some stuff. The Bible uses the word heaven to describe three things. Number one, sky. Atmosphere and outer space. That's the first thing. Just what is physically above us or outside of the physical earth. So that word is used, the word heaven is used to describe that. You'll find that in Genesis 1 and all through the Bible, the word heaven is used. The second thing is this, it's the unseen realm of angelic and demonic activity. It's a realm of warfare, a realm of strife, a realm, a realm um, you're letting in on it in passages in Daniel and Ephesians chapter 6, you can find it in there. And it's really talking about a realm that is going right around us as even if you almost like around us now, here, but it's unseen. It's a spiritual realm. That could be described as the second heaven. The first heaven is the physical air, atmosphere, outer space. Second heaven, the unseen realm of angelic and demonic activity, a realm of warfare. And then you get the third heaven, which is the realm of God's unseen, unchallenged, unrivaled rule. 
place of perfect peace, tranquility, a place, a place of utter transcendent glory. You come across that especially in the book of Revelation. And it is mind-blowing and it is breathtaking. When we talk about heaven and hell, and I'm going to go to heaven when I die, we're talking about the third heaven. We're talking about God's amazing, majestic, transcendent rule breaking in at the end of time, after judgment day, and that transcendent, glorious rule being the thing that really overtakes the whole of creation. That's what we are referring to. So what are the biblical terms for heaven as we understand it? Firstly, paradise. Who knows what paradise means? It means park. That's what it means. Paradise is from, it's a Greek word, but it's from an oriental root, and it means park. And it really just speaks of, and we're going to Regent's Park, aren't we, after church? Why? Because it's nice. Yeah? And it's enjoyable, and it's pleasurable. And, and, and in, in the area of Eden, in Genesis, the Bible says that God created a garden. So the area is called Eden, but he made a garden. He made a little park for Adam and Eve. He said, you look after that. Adam was a park keeper. You look after that, you subdue that, you rule up, this is this little place I've made for you. It's a place of pleasure, a place of delight. That's really the word used. Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's got one thief on that side mocking him. The other thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says, I'll tell you the truth, today you will be with me in the park. Yeah? Isn't that nice? We're going to go to the park together. Paradise. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about this amazing experience. He has this vision that was so vivid, he says, I'm not even sure if I was actually went there in my body or if it was out of the body. It was so vivid, I couldn't tell you. He said, but I got taken up to the park. I got taken up to paradise, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So it speaks of pleasure, it speaks of delight, it speaks of perfection. Another one is rest. The Bible uses the term rest to speak of heaven. It speaks of repose, a sense of, ah. It's what people are after when they say, I can't wait to retire. Yeah? People that live for their retirement, I can't wait to retire, because what are, they, what are they really after? They're after that sense of no more futility, kind of toiling, toiling, not for much, getting home tired, you've been working all day, straight to bed, up in the morning, same thing, no more of that, I can go and do bowls. <laughs> or if I've got more money, I can go on a cruise, or whatever. It's that kind, it's a sense of that's, ah, that's it. It's what people say, are after when they say, I want to win the lottery. Say, why? I can stop all that work stuff and I can just rest. Now, the problem is, is that those things, nice though they may be, don't really deliver in the deepest sense because all it provides really is physical rest. Whereas what's being referred to here in God's rest is a sense of, the, the best way to describe it in modern terminology is total well-being. Complete. More than a face pack could give you, more than a day at the sanctuary could give you. We're talking total, eternal well-being. Total peace of mind, total calm. It's God's rest. Thirdly, eternal life. This is speaking of its longevity, how long it will go on for. It will go on forever. So we've got pleasurable, tranquil, park life and deep repose forever. Sounding good so far? Okay, this is what it's talking about. It won't be disturbed, it won't be disrupted, it's secure. So there won't be that sense of, oh, what, is something going to go wrong, you know that? You hear people say it, things are going well, but oh, you just wait. There won't be none of that in heaven, alright? There'll be no sense of what's around the corner, no, all good. All good. And you would just know, because all of the enemies, sin, Satan, all, the, all these death would have been thrown into the lake of fire. We'll look at that next, next week. So there'll be no threat from those things, eternally under God's judgment in the lake of fire. So there's, no, there's nothing to fear. Good forever. 
Salvation is another term used. Why? Why pick on this? Well, it's very important because everyone that finds themselves in heaven will have a deep sense in them that they are there because they got rescued. They're not there because they were better than so-and-so down the street. He was always an arsty piece of work. Not like me. There'll be none of that in heaven. There'll be no no self-righteousness, no self-confidence, no sense of, oh, I know why I'm here. None of that. It'll be like, I'm here because God had mercy. I've been saved. He broke into my life. Wow. Heaven will be populated with the grateful, with the humble, with the meek, with those who are blown away for eternity by God's grace, that they should find themselves in this place forever, all on God's initiative. Just overflowing worship forever. Another term used is future hope. Now, I don't don't know about you, but I can read the word hope and think, don't like that word because it speaks of what? Uncertainty. Yeah? I hope the weather's nicer. I hope the weather's nice for the picnic. What am I saying there? Might be, might not. But when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't mean that. In fact, it makes it specifically clear that our hope is sure and certain. So why does it use that word? Because hope not only generally speaks of uncertainty, but speaks of the future. Okay? And so the reason why that word is used is because different from faith, faith is confidence in God for the here and now, and for what you believe he's going to do in this age, hope is this eternal sense of, I know where I'm going. So it's, it's really tapping into this whole idea of the future. But that's the reason why the word hope is used. Another term used is the new heavens and the new earth. That's speaking of the physical location. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses have almost got it right, which is unusual for them. And um, they speak of um, the new heavens and the new earth rather than heaven. That's more accurate. Okay? It's not going to be just clouds. That's the new heavens. It's going to be a new earth. It will be as physical as this earth. It's important you realise that. It's not floaty-floaty. Okay? It is a physicality about God's new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. There's a reality about it. There's nothing wrong with the physical. You often find this. People, people go down strange mystical spiritual ideas. Or they've been under that in heaven because the physical's bad. No, it's not. The physical's fine. The reason why we struggle against sin in our bodies is because they're fallen. When we get our resurrection body, there'll be none of that. It'll be physical, but it won't be fallen, so it won't be a sinful problem. So new heavens and a new earth. I'll read to you what's going to happen from 2 Peter. It says this. This is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. With scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlooked this fact. The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished, the flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies, that's the stars and the planets, will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, 
what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's going to be a huge fiery melting judgment that comes on the whole of creation. The scientists sometimes predict this kind of thing. They say it looks like if certain things were just to change a bit, then this whole thing would just explode. But they don't understand very often, some do, but some don't understand that it's God's work. But the whole thing will be burnt up. And then there'll be a brand new heavens, galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, and a brand new earth where righteousness dwells. Hallelujah. We're going to be there. You're a Christian. You're going to be there. Another word used to describe it is glory. What does glory mean? In the Bible, it means weight. I love that. Weight. There's a certain weight about God. Weight about God. In fact, I heard someone speak once who had a real major, major encounter with God. He said it was like a planet came into the room. <laughs> it was like a planet filled the room. It's just a sense of the weight, the substance of God. We will be in his presence forever, and the weight, the substance of that will be overwhelming, I'm sure. When you, those of you that, 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 that know the Lord, you've just had the touches of him, experiences of him when he's filled you with his spirit at different times, there can be a sense sometimes where you think, this is too much. I know for me, there have been times, I remember years ago, we were thinking, I don't think I can take much more. I'm a little bit scared now, though this is really good. Because that's what it's like. Because of the glory, the glory, the weight of God's presence. And the final thing is that it's called the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. What's this speaking of? It's speaking of the fact that God's in charge. Now, every nation reflects its government. The kingdom of God will reflect God's nature. What's he like? He's perfect. He's love. He's holy. He's all glorious. He's just. He's totally upright. He's got complete integrity. So his kingdom will be just marked by those things. It's going to be absolutely, beautifully glorious. So what's heaven? That's the words the Bible uses to describe. That's the words the Bible uses to describe. More things. What's it like? We'll get a few more to Eden. Before the fall, there was no sin, so there was no guilt. There was no guilt, so there was no spoiled relationships. There was no spoiled relationships. There was no fear. There was no fear. There was no punishment. There was no division. There was no shame. There was no jealousy, envy. There was no strife. There was no wars. There was no cyclones. There was no abuse. There was no um, injustice. There was no oppression. There was no violence. There were none of these things. None of that was just common to life. There was no muggings. There was no grief. There was no um, threats. There was no anxiety. None of those things were in creation. In fact, in God's own words, everything was very good. That's what it was like. So Adam and Eve's relationship, there was no tension. There was no misunderstanding. There was no miscommunication. There was no baggage. <laughs> there was no history. There was just, it was just perfect. Completely unspoiled in every way. Everything about it was utterly perfect. I mean, every now and then, I don't know about you, but I see a photograph of someone like the Maldives, or you see, you know, you're watching something on telly, or maybe you're lucky enough to go somewhere where it's just, it seems unspoiled. Yeah? It's, you think this seems unspoiled, but it's not unspoiled, but it seems like it. Well, imagine the whole of creation being restored to complete unspoiltness and yet without the vulnerability of Eden. You see, Eden was vulnerable. Why? Well, because sin and disobedience were unexplored. Satan at that point was undefeated. 
And so there was this looming thing. Satan comes in, tempts Adam and Eve, they fall for it, bang, the whole thing goes wrong. But by the time the new heavens and the new earth come, Satan got defeated at the cross, amen? He's been thrown into the lake of fire by that point, he's been destroyed forever. Sins dealt with at the cross, beaten at, uh, at the cross again. Wow, wow, Jesus. Yeah, amazing stuff. All these enemies beaten. Um, people that really are going to populate heaven are the people that are done with sin. They've seen it for what it is. They've said, this is a joke. This promise is much but delivers nothing. I'm going to shake it off. I'm going to follow Jesus. And, they're, and they're, they're, So they've been given a brand new heart. They've been born again. Then they've been given a brand new body. So they're no longer being weighed down with the passions and the various things that burn in the body which cause us to want to sin. That's all gone. And so actually, it's all unspoiled, but there's no vulnerability. Nothing's going to go wrong. It's going to be great. It's going to be beautiful. All the wrongs are going to be put right. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 21. This is what it's going to be like. Get ready for this. Now, the important thing to remember with Revelation 21 is it comes just after Revelation 20. A little tip for you. Revelation 20 is the day of judgment. So at this point, Revelation 21, there's going to be a real sense of relief and, and resolve. Every, all the loose ends tied up. Everyone that's done anything wrong has been dealt with one way or the other. They've either been judged in hell or they're under the blood of Jesus, they've repented and it's all been forgiven. Okay? So it's a beautiful moment where all of the loose ends have been tied up. All the people you think really need to be punished would have been punished. Okay? All of that stuff's all been done. Then listen. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Now, wonderful. Wow, what a moment. What a moment. The most exciting thing about the new heavens and the new earth is this. The proximity of God is right there. I mean, at the moment, to have him living in the spy's spirit and to know his presence as we worship is one thing. But to have him actually completely, I don't know, physically, I don't even know how this thing works. But he's actually right among us. The Bible says we will see him face to face. He's not going to send an angel to wipe away your tears. He's going to come and wipe away every tear from your eyes. Just his nearness, just his presence, being in his presence, but in that completely unrestricted sense, utterly swallowed up in his glory. That's what it's going to be like. That's heaven. That's heaven. Not only this, we're going to be different. Me and you are going to be different. We're going to get a brand new body. Should we talk about this for a few minutes? What's the brand new body going to look like? Okay, here we go. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians. I've got it in my notes. It says this. There are heavenly bodies... And there's earthly bodies. The glory of the heavenly is of one kind. The glory of the earthly is of another. <laughs> there's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is raised imperishable. It's sown in dishonour. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now you might think, that just sounds weird. 
not as strange as it sounds. People have lots of complexities about their bodies. Have you noticed this? I'm sure none of you do. <laughs> but there are people out there who do. The tragedies of self-hate, eating disorders, obesity, physical paranoia, people get. When I was born, my ears were this size. My head was a lot smaller, though. There was three. They thought we were triplets. And, I mean, honestly, you see photos, photos of me as a kid, it is desperate. It is just like... But my mum, being the good mum that she was, would always say, no, they're, they're fine, they're, they're puff, there's nothing wrong with them. My dad, on the other hand... Well, I said to my dad when I was 15, Dad, I want to get my ears done. He said, no problem. He said, I'll put you on the private, we'll get you to the front of the queue. <laughs> I remember thinking, I'm happy about that, but for some reason I feel really sad about that as well. <laughs> you sound more desperate than me. And uh, it was a big issue. It was a big issue for me. And I remember, you know, I remember you go places, I remember going to Cinema 180. Anyone, did anyone go at Margate? Anyone go to Cinema 180? <laughs> Do you ever have those moments where you feel you're not connecting with those that are listening to you? It's one of those moments. Cinema 180 was amazing. You would stand up in this uh, huge dome and the screen would be, uh, it would be 180 degrees, so it would go from there, there right, round to the front and, you, and it would be a roller coaster. so you'd go, oh, and you felt like you were being sick when you were watching it. But I would stand there, I remember these people behind me talking about this, you know, the guy at the World Cup trophy in front of them. You know, I just remember these things, and it can play on your mind. I remember once going to get my hair cut, it was always a tragedy, because you, you thought your ears were getting smaller, but then you realised that it's just that your hair had got a bit longer. And um, I get my hair cut, my English teacher said, Listen, have you had your hair cut, have you had your ears lowered? Like, oh, Mr Horncastle, I've got issues with him, I'm working them through. It was tough, it was tough, it was tough. I remember running to the, to the hairdressers and wishing my friends wouldn't see me because I knew that it was just an emotional moment and I needed time to process it after my hair had been cut. And I remember sitting in the chair again, I'm cutting, you know, is it cutting the ears are getting bigger and bigger, thinking, I don't believe this. And suddenly, this knocking on the window, I looked out and all my friends had followed me. And I just screamed, and I thought, I don't know what to do. I was standing in my bedroom, looking in the mirror, thinking, what am I going to do? I can laugh about it now. But it was real at the time. But you, yeah. You don't realise. Yeah. But you see, I mean, it is funny, but there are some people who physically, they, you know, it's a real, it's, a, it's hard. They struggle with the way they look. Paranoia, plastic surgery, Botox, breast enlargement, stomach stapling, uh, liposuction, nose jobs, ear jobs, face jobs. I mean, it's just, it, it goes on and on because people are, people are kind of, there's a sense of them, I don't know, they just think it, but listen, it's going to get wrinkly. It's going to waste away. It's going to drop. That's the way it goes. It's, the, it's just you're in a temporary body. It's not the glorified body. It's not the resurrected body. Now, I'm not here just trying to cast stones. People that have plastic surgery, whatever. But what I am saying is, is ultimately it is futile. Ultimately. I don't think it's a sin. We all, you know, we all do things that are a bit random. But ultimately, you, you can't fight gravity for that long. It's the way it goes. If your nose is a certain way, look, that's the way it is. Sometimes people in my view look weirder afterwards. You think, man, I thought it looked stranger. I thought it looked normal before. Oh, you won't say anything in case they then go and get it done again. You know, just get them in a dilemma. But you can't live like that. But people live with these dilemmas because there's a sense, I think we're just aware that although our bodies are biologically amazing, they're flawed. They're flawed. And we live in a flawed age. This age is wasting away. 
So we waste away with it. That's how it goes. But we're going to get a brand new body. Which is, it's, what's it going to be like? Well, let's get some tips from Jesus. He was unrecognisable. If you read after his resurrection, people just didn't. And yet he had the scars still. So he was different, but he was the same. Initially, there was a sense of, I don't, I don't, is, it, is it the master? I don't know. People talked to him for hours, and suddenly the way he broke bread and gave thanks, they thought, ah, it's Jesus, and then he disappeared. So they didn't recognize, but ah, there were certain things that were similar. He appeared in locked rooms without unlocking the doors. He just appeared, and yet he ate fish. So he was physical, but he wasn't limited by the physical things that we are. It won't age. The body won't get ill. The body won't get tempted. Sin's been completely vanquished from it. So we're going to be physical, recognisable, and yet different. That's what it's going to be like. So how do we get to heaven then? Do you want to go to this place with this brand new body? Yeah, of course you do. How do you get there? Well, the bi- people generally say it's people that are good. And they're right. It's only the good people who get there. Absolutely. But they often miss one tiny detail, which is just the Bible says there is no one good. It causes a problem. It is the good who gets If you're good, you'd get to heaven. But the Bible says no one is good. In fact, only one person is good. Only one person is sinless. Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever lived as a complete man, though fully God, but fully man, tempted in every way, resisted in every way, even sins of the heart, sins of the mind, completely, utterly, just fulfilled God's law perfectly. He's the only one. So guess what? He's the only one who qualifies for heaven. You see, we go astray here. We think we're not that bad. We think, well, you know, compared to so-and-so, I'm okay. Listen, the Bible uses words like this to describe our heart. Deceitful, sick, calloused, hard. That's the human heart. Have you never deceived yourself? You never deceived yourself? You you, you tell yourself you're doing something for a reason, but you know full well you're doing it for another reason. But you tell yourself, it's ridiculous. You've never done that? It's just me. Oh, I'll just do this. This is why I'm doing it. You You think, well, I know why I'm doing it. That's not why I'm doing it. It deceives itself. You get deceived. You, you know, it's, it's just, there's all, because it's sinful, fallen. If we were let into heaven as we are, we'd ruin it. <laughs> we'd ruin it. Imagine they've got cars in heaven. I've seen some of you behind a wheel. You'd ruin it. There's other people in heaven. Yeah, there's other people in heaven. So, you'd ruin it. Because we're impatient sometimes, aren't we? We put ourselves first. You see? As we are, we're not fitted out for glory. We've fallen. Something radical needs to happen. So final question. Can anyone get into heaven? And if so, can we know that we are going? Can we really know? Well, yes and yes. Yes, we can get into heaven. And yes, we can know. Now, in conversations I've had with people, this seems to surprise people more than anything else. When I look them in the eye and I say, I know I'm going to heaven. They say, no, that's ridiculous. How can you say that? Very surprised feel that I'm arrogant, feel that I just think that I must be something really great, but that's not how it works. Here is how it works. Jesus, remember, sinless, yes? Qualifies for heaven by his sinlessness. Totally pleasing to God in every way. So, um, so basically what happens is he goes from being sinless to being completely sin on the cross, from one extreme to the other. Now the reason why that happens is this. When he's on the cross and he becomes sin, the Bible says that he was in his body bearing our sins. And so the Bible is teaching there that at the point of the cross, something between the Father and the Son, a plan happened that had been planned for eternity, when all the wrong things that had happened before that point, 
and that had really stored up before God and ready for judgment, all the bad things that happened that were happening then and that would ever happen were placed on Jesus to such an extent that he became sin. So what was happening on the cross was that the Father was judging the Son so that the Father's justice would be satisfied. The Father can't just sweep sins under the carpet. No, he says, but I can't sweep it under the carpet, but I want to save people. There's no way they can get into heaven because they're stinking sinners. So what am I going to do? I'm going to give my son for them. And then he kills his son on the cross. Now Jesus willingly, part of the plan, gave himself. It wasn't kind of unfair. That it was a plan between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Okay? So the Father sends the Son. The Son willingly comes, willingly goes to the cross, even though it's terrible. On the cross, he becomes sin. So it goes from one extreme to the other and then dies because the wages of sin is death. So he dies. Then Jesus is face to face with death. Now death in the Bible is a power. It's not just some random thing, oh, we die. It's a spiritual power. The Bible describes it as the last enemy. Very, very, very wicked and terrible. But, sins, but death's power is sin. Death can only keep people in its grasp because they've sinned. That's how it gets to keep them. Well, anyway, Jesus would become sin on the cross, then dies, then face to face with death. But suddenly, of course, because the sins weren't his own, death is like, oh. Jesus is like, yeah. <laughs> Jesus raises from the dead. Resurrection. It all works. Even the spiritual realms, there's authority, order. It all works in a certain way. Jesus rises from the dead. Jesus rises up, ascends to heaven where he's with the Father. Okay? Now, the whole deal with becoming a Christian is this. The, the doctrine that stands or falls on is what the theologians call our call union with Christ. And it means this. When we become saved, we are joined through faith to Jesus. We are joined with him. We are utterly swallowed up in him. The Bible uses terms like we are one spirit with him. We are hidden in him. There's a mysterious mystical joining that happens. It also describes as a heart of stone being taken out, a heart of flesh being put in, a new heart from God. The Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. So by his spirit, he comes and lives in us. We we become one. He's the head, we're the body, we become one. And so what it means is this, is that because we are hidden in him, and because our sin that kept us from being right with God in heaven was put on him at the cross, that, that debt has been wiped clean. God the Father says, fine, my justice is satisfied through Jesus' death. No problem, it's all sorted. Totally not angry anymore in that sense. I'm not angry at all of those who come to Christ for refuge and come to Jesus to hide in him. So we're hidden in him, and so guess what? We're allowed into heaven. So our access to God is based entirely on the fact that we are hidden in the one who is good enough for heaven. Yes? So when I say, I know I'm going to heaven, it's totally the opposite from self-righteousness. I'm saying I know I'm going to heaven and I'm not leaning on myself in any way. My confidence is not in myself in any way. I'm utterly confident because I'm hidden in someone who is righteous and perfect and who has totally satisfied God's wrath. And so because I'm in him, I'm in. You understand this, yeah? And so our confidence is completely in Jesus Christ. This is how it works. This is how the thing works. Now the Bible says that even now we are in heaven. We are seed with Christ in heavenly places because we're in Christ. So you might say, well look, why then when someone becomes a Christian, don't they just go into heaven straight away? Why can't we just get transported up? Well, because of our sinful bodies. Our bodies are unredeemed. We still feel things in the flesh as Christians that are shameful and shocking. We think, oh, I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe I'm feeling that. Because sin still indwells our bodies. And so there's this time period where we are in Christ, we're in heaven, we live, we live heavenly lives now. Our priorities are different. No, no longer take, take, take. It's give, give, give. It's no longer just all about me. No, it's all about Jesus. So we've totally, our citizenship has transferred. We're aiming a totally different way. But physically, we're not fitted out for heaven. 
because heaven can't accept sin. So we have to live our life, and then when we die, go into the ground, and when Jesus returns, bang, we, our, um, our spirit seems we'll meet our resurrected body, bang, we're with him forever. That's how it's going to work. Clear? Hallelujah? Two final questions just to finish. Two final comments of two groups. First group, if you're here and you're a Christian, so what? What do I do about this? Listen, there is a new breed of so-called Christianity just coming to the fore which really gives no time or thought to heaven, eternity. All the promises are about the here and now. All the promises are about the here and now. Now that's great. The Bible says that God's kingdom has come, so we want to come into the promises in the here and now, but we must fix our eyes on eternity. If you want to suffer as a good soldier for Jesus without crippling under it and saying, I can't do this, you need a future hope because you'll suffer for Jesus. The Bible says all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. You'll get opposition. And if, you've got, if, if your future hope's not sorted, you'll just buckle and think, I can't do it. If you want to face death robustly, if you want to be able to look death in the face and laugh, you need to be clear on heaven. You need to be clear on where you're going. You're not going to be 20 forever. We're all going to, sooner or later, be on our deathbed unless Jesus comes first. We've got to be able to look it in the face and laugh because we know we're in Christ and we know that he is one and we know we're in heaven anyway, but we're just waiting to be there physically. And we know that death for Christians is no more than falling asleep. Hallelujah. That's all it is. All the Christian heroes that you think of, John Owen, John Owen had 11 children, lost them all to sickness. Lost them all. What did he do? Get the hunt with God? Backslide? Fall away? No. He wrote some of the most amazing theology we've still got. Pure and God. Why? He understood the future hope. John Bunyan. Years of his life in prison. Years of his life in prison. And yet he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. Didn't get the ump. So, served God. The Apostle Paul. Much of his time spent in prison. Writing letters. How did, he manage to, how did he manage to remain focused on the gospel? Future hope. Gladys Elwood went out to China. Young lady. I mean, huge danger, really, during the Second World War, Japanese troops in China, trying to kill all the kids. She's, trying to, she's traveling with 100 kids she's adopted. You think, how do you find the strength for that? Future hope. Future hope, future hope, future hope. You've got to get it into your system if you're going to live a robust Christian life. That's the first group. And then the second group, those of you that say, I'm not really sure if I'm a Christian, not sure where I'm quite at at the moment, I want to ask you this, what more could you ask for? What more could God do to demonstrate his love for you, to demonstrate that he wants you with him, to demonstrate that he's, what more could he do? He's made a way where there is no way. If there was another way, don't you think that God would have found it with Jesus? He's done all that he can to make a way for you to come to know him. So... It makes me wonder why anyone in the world could possibly say, I'm not going to follow, I'm not going to sign up. What could possibly stop that? My only, the only thing I can possibly think of is that it's pride. Because this gospel, this message, it leaves no room for self-righteousness. <laughs> it leaves us just without anything in and of ourselves and we've got to completely rest on another. And we don't like that. We'd like to think we've brought a few little bits and bobs in that have commended us to God. No. No. The Bible says even our good deeds are filthy rags. But I want to say this to you. If Jesus, the Lord of glory, the author of life, was willing to lay down his life and become obedient to death for you, if he was willing to humble himself, can't you throw off your pride and come to him? His, his arms are open wide. The Bible says God is calling all people everywhere to repent and turn to him. I want to just urge you, please do this before judgment day. Please do this. Get right with God. Get right with him. Get right with him. He loves you and he's for you.
we pray? Let's pray. Father, you've just provided such amazing hope for us. This new heavens and new earth. Wow. Wow. I pray, Lord, for revelation. I pray we'd be bowled over today. Lord God, increasingly. I pray, Lord, that we would work this truth into our lives so that, Lord, we're able to even rejoice when times are tough. And even, Lord, to persevere and to remain pure and to withstand temptation. Because, Lord, our hope is fixed on being with you forever. Being with you, Lord. Will you wipe away every tear from our eye? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Lord. We know everything that can be shaken will be shaken. So we want to stand on the rock. We want to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. You make yourself so available to us. We turn to you today. We turn to you. We look to you. We fix our eyes and our hearts and our affections on you because you are lovely. Amen. Shall we stand? If the band would like to come, we're going to worship.